Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show. A lot to discuss today. We begin talking about the potential impending chaos in the global financial system. We are starting to see signs of stress, and those signs of stress could become real structural cracks in the system, uh, both in the markets and within the back end of the financial system. The structures that enable you to Go into the bank and have confidence that when you withdraw your money, you can get it out. Just as we saw in 2007, 8, and 9. That could be starting once again. Uh, There is stress in the markets in very selective places. The Fed has completely mismanaged the situation. I remember, and if you watch this show uh, back in Oh, February of this year, when inflation started to kick off. Really, it was late last year. And the Fed said, this is going to be transitory. Remember, they used that word transitory. We believe that inflation is transitory. They wanted 2% inflation for years. That was the Fed's target, is to have 2% inflation. And the trouble was that the biggest, most dynamic sector of the economy is fundamentally deflationary. That, of course, being tech. You get more and more and more, and you either pay the same for it or you pay even less. Think about how much it would cost you to have the kind of bandwidth that you have today on your internet in an unlimited fashion 15 years ago. If you could even get it, it would cost thousands and thousands of dollars a month. Now it probably costs you $75 a month to have unlimited gigabit internet. So the biggest sector of the economy, tech, is fundamentally deflationary. You get more and more and more for less and less. That causes an overall deflationary trend in the economy. And the trouble with deflation is that people delay purchasing. People delay not just purchasing, but all kinds of economic activity. You were going to hire this person, but you can get them for less if you wait till next month. You were going to buy the car, but if you wait till next month, it'll cost even less. Deflation is far more damaging if left to run amok than inflation. But we didn't exactly have deflation. Not really. We had 1.2-1.5% overall inflation in the economy. Certain areas like rents went up every year more than that. Of course, that's not included in CPI nor energy prices. Energy prices have gotten steadily cheaper to neutral, really, over the past several years. You freaked out over paying $5 a gallon for gas, but $5 today is a hell of a lot less than it was 15 or 20 years ago. So it's not the same $5 that you would have been interpreting if it had happened in 2008. But the Fed wanted to get inflation to 2%, and so they began a massive set of quantitative easing a huge policy of quantitative easing, zero interest rate policy during COVID. There was always an excuse to continue zero interest rate policy, of course, and then maybe they'd raise the Fed's benchmark rate by a quarter of a point here or a half a point there. Generally, they were quarter point increments. Same with central banks around the world. They maintained the policy even longer than we did, so much so that you had negative yields around the world, meaning if you bought a government bond, you paid them 
And I'm not just talking about negative real yields, meaning the yield the bond pays you net of inflation. I mean nominal yields, meaning the actual listed rate for the bond is negative. And you think, who would buy such a thing? Well, who would buy such a thing is uh, central banks. That's who bought these negative yielding bonds, along with certain pension funds that were mandated by law to buy them. So this entire trend took place, and COVID was the latest excuse to continue massive quantitative easing. And uh, not just on the interest rate side, but the, the purchasing of assets. And during COVID, the Fed expanded it even further. And for the first time ever, contrary to what the law says they are even allowed to do, they started buying corporate bonds as well. They opened up the Fed window to people they would never open it up to, banks, institutions that they would never open up the Fed window to. And that is what played out over the past several years. Well, they didn't just get inflation up to 2%. They started an inflationary trend, the momentum of which didn't just stop at 2% because they decided that was their favorite round number. No, it continued well and above that. And it wasn't just the Fed, of course. And what I have argued is that perhaps fiscal policy played an even bigger role. It was stimmy checks. It was the Paycheck Protection Program. We now know 75% of the money uh, uh, from that program, at least 75%, was completely fraudulent. It was taken fraudulently. It never went to pay anybody's paycheck besides the uh, owners of corrupt companies uh, who took advantage of this. Sometimes there weren't companies at all. They were just shell organizations set up, scams, fraud all over the country completely out of control. But it wasn't just cash that went out. It was cash that didn't go in. Student loan payments suspended, eviction suspended around the country by executive edict from the CDC. Court later ruled that wasn't legal. All of that. And so inflation went completely wild. And as if the Fed couldn't do anything worse, once inflation started going wild, they pretended as though they could rein it in by raising interest rates. They didn't pay any attention to the fiscal side. They didn't step up and say, listen, we're going to do what we can, but we can't do this alone. And if Biden and the Democrats, and frankly, the Republicans in many cases, keep handing out all of this free money, keep engaging in this reckless government spending, keep sending tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine, we aren't going to be able to hold back the inflation. Then they proceeded down the path of raising rates, and they did so in a way which was informed by a complete lack of understanding of the way that the economy has changed in the past 40 years. There's this assumption among the economist class, among these academics, that if you raise interest rates as a central bank, well, first of all, the assumption is that they're going to raise throughout the rest of the curve. That's the first assumption, which sometimes is true, sometimes isn't. Then in the second assumption, if you do that, then you will lessen inflation. And, and their example for this is Paul Volcker raising rates to reduce inflation in the 1970s and 1980s. And the Fed subscribes to what they call a data-driven approach. A data-driven approach. And this kind of data-driven approach is not unique to the Fed. It has 
become pervasive throughout the economy. It's become pervasive throughout healthcare, where people say, we just rely on the data. Whatever the data tell us to do, we do. And of course, the obvious question becomes, well, what kind of data do you have? Is your data even relevant to what's happening now? Or is it based on an idiosyncratic situation that played out 40 years ago that resembles what's happening today uh, very little? Of course, we saw the data with the pandemic where they said, we have to flatten the curve. And then everyone said, well, based on what data? And that was the wrong question to ask, you see? And people are still saying that they shouldn't have locked everyone down because they didn't have the data. Well, no, they had data. They phonied up data very quickly to support locking everyone down. And instead of people saying, show us the data, they should have said, no, this is wrong. This is illegal. This is unconstitutional. This violates people's basic rights. It will destroy the economy. Rather than just saying, okay, if you show me the data, you can do whatever you like. Want to burn down my home? Just show me some data that supports it. Want to shoot my dog? Just show me some data. That has become the prevailing way of operating in the modern world. And in a whole realm of, a whole host of realms, really, data is pretty useful. It tells you interesting things and you can... Uh, scroll through all kinds of data and you can make sense of it and, and you can do uh, interesting things like sequence the genome because you are able to sort and parse through large amounts of data, much less store it. I mean, that was the first issue is in 1998, you couldn't ever really store a whole lot of data in any one place. And so the idea of using it for much of anything was out of reach. How much data could you store on a floppy disk? Not that much. Well, you could have a thousand floppy disks put together in an array and you could try to piece something together. And that was done in parts of the uh, market. Certainly back then, you had sophisticated financial players that would use historical data of weather to trade commodities or they'd use historical data of moves in currencies to uh, trade those currencies and to trade interest rates. But it was very rudimentary, you see. The idea of using data, for example, to make trades looked nothing like it looks today. The, the, how that might work, for example, is that you might see, in the, I, I recall an old Paul Tudor Jones, an old documentary that's made about Paul Tudor Jones, one of the great hedge fund traders of all time, a, a guy who I've had the chance to speak to a number of times, multi-billionaire. And the idea of uh, what was considered advanced usage of data back then was taking one chart, a line chart, that you made with a very expensive machine and then taking a line chart of today's market, layering them over one another, and that was called using data back then. Not, do, not doing a, a complex regression analysis of millions or billions of data points as is done today in the financial markets. And the problem with using all this data is that you can never be too sure that you aren't just experiencing a false positive or a false negative error. You can never be too sure about that at all. Because the data grows so complicated that you cannot see the forest through the trees. 
and it presents a number of issues. For example, you might recall back in 1998, there was a hedge fund called LTCM, or Long-Term Capital Management. They were data-driven, and they thought, wow, we've just got so much data. We are so ahead of the curve on using computers to parse through data that we can correlate uh, the number of hummingbirds on a particular tree to which way Boeing stock is going to move. Because we have the data, so why not do that? And they did these various uh, data analyses. The data analyses didn't really lead them to do anything too complicated. They had big carry trades on, essentially. In other words, you could borrow in one place at a low interest rate, deposit that money in another place at a higher interest rate, and make the difference, even between two different overnight rates. And it might be a very small return, but you determine it to be a low risk or in some cases even risk-free return. And since you can make 0.2% risk-free, well, if you lever that 10 to 1, that's 2% now. If you lever it 20 to 1, it's 4%. If you lever it 100 to 1, it's 20%. What if we levered it 1,000 to 1? Well, then all of a sudden the Russians default on their debt, the currency crashes, and everything goes up in smoke. They have to be bailed out. There's huge counterparty risk issues. And so this world of being quote-unquote data-driven is one which can lead you into total disaster. And in fact, what you find is that when people become over-reliant on data and they ignore common sense and they ignore their intuition and they ignore the observations that they could make if they just looked around, very, very, very bad things can happen. And that is what we are seeing with the Fed today. They are driving the economy off a cliff in the same way that they did in 2007. There's a news uh, article out from, uh, or rather a newsletter out from Bloomberg here. And uh, this is remarkable here. It says, uh, spiraling losses on Wall Street are now snowballing into forced asset liquidation, according to Bank of America strategist. The NYSE Composite Index, which includes U.S. stocks, depository receipts, and real estate investment trusts, has broken multiple technical support levels, including its 200-week moving average, the 14,000 mark. Now accumulated losses could force funds to sell more assets to raise cash, accelerating the sell-off. Similarly, grim milestones keep piling up for Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong. As September draws to an end, the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index has lost 14% to rank as the worst performer among major equity benchmarks globally in September. However, around the lowest since the financial crisis, it is now trading at 0.6 times book value, the cheapest ever. And of course, you never know what the actual book values are in China because there's so much fraud. You have serious, serious stress in the markets. And... Uh, it could get much worse. People are talking about Credit Suisse being weak. I think some of the fears, and it's very dangerous to say this, it's always dangerous to be the guy that says maybe fears are overblown because then something blows up and then they, they, they never let it go. It's much easier to be the person that always predicts catastrophe and catastrophe never happens, but then you're right once and it, it makes up for all of that. We'll see what's going on with Credit Suisse. Stock price is down huge. People are concerned. Uh, there's a lot of fear circulating online. Remains to be seen whether Credit Suisse will actually go bust 
or not. Where their losses are actually piling up, no one knows. They may not even know because their portfolios are so complicated that just valuing them on a day-to-day basis becomes uh, something they have to hire rocket scientists to do. Yes, actual rocket scientists, not just the expression. But of course, we have updates out on this pipeline. I need to talk to you about the pipeline situation here. Give you an update on what's happened with the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. There is an interesting coincidence in all of this, and that is that the day that the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines were sabotaged vis-a-vis an explosion uh, that no one has yet taken credit for, credit's being thrown around, the Russians blame the Anglo-Saxon countries, so they say, meaning the U.S. and the U.K. Certain Polish former defense minister blames America. America blames Russia. A lot of finger pointing going on. I think it's first important to acknowledge we don't know. I mean, I don't know for sure that there was a pipeline explosion. It's important to recognize that, for one thing. I mean, I, I believe there probably was. It seems that there was an explosion that caused a hole in a pipeline. I've seen no evidence of that, for one thing. I mean, let's just start there. Let's just start with the fact that the entire body of evidence that exists for a pipeline having been sabotaged, the entire body of evidence is that some people said that. We have seismograph of allegedly what seems like an explosion. And there's one single photo, one single picture of some bubbles in the ocean. One single photo. Nobody else could be bothered to go out there and take any more photos? And all this time, nobody thinks to go on a boat, and go out 18 miles and off the coast and just go snap some pictures? And the thing about the photo is that we were told that there, the gas was turned off there anyway. So I don't know. What are the bubbles? Are they air? I don't know. So I think we can move forward with the assumption that there was a sabotage. But the point is, we know very little. We don't have any of the raw data. We're just depending on people's accounts of all of this. So it's um, really un- unreal. I see some people in the comments here talking about the stream. We've got good speeds here. I'm looking. Um, we've got good speeds. It seems everything's fine on my end uh, as far as internet and all of that. So uh, for those of you watching live, of course, you can listen on podcast apps everywhere. But the, the pipeline being blown correlates with the opening of a new pipeline project known as the Baltic Pipeline Project. This brings gas up basically from the north into Poland to supply Europe. And it just so happens that gas started flowing through that pipeline at 6.10 a.m. on October 1st. Basically, uh, just hours or a couple of days after this uh, pipeline went down. The announcement was slated for the same day. Is that a coincidence? Probably not. It can't reasonably be a, be thought of as a, as a coincidence in terms of timing, in terms of just being a lucky thing. It doesn't make a lot of sense at all. But that did correlate with the opening of this new pipeline. And that is really quite interesting. Of course, there's the whole matter of the East Mediterranean Pipeline. This is a pipeline that most people in America have just never heard of. The East Med Pipeline, for those of you watching, can see a photo of the path it takes on the screen. Uh, 
Uh, this is a pipeline that brings natural gas from Israeli natural gas fields, which were only discovered in 2009, just recently, uh, brings them up, stops through Greece, brings them across, uh, or stops off in, in Cyprus, I believe, brings them across uh, off to Greece and then up into Italy and into Europe. Now, this pipeline, I'm not sure to what degree it even exists. I don't know that they even started construction on it, but it exists theoretically. <laughs> it's, a, it's a theoretical pipeline to supply uh, what is a massive amount of Israeli natural gas, something like 22 uh, trillion cubic feet of natural gas, uh, transport that into Europe. Now, this pipeline could have been done by now, should have been done by now. Biden got into office, and he withdrew support for it. And basically, this pipeline was not going to happen without support from the U.S. because of certain uh, regional feuds between Turkey and Israel, between Turkey and uh, Greece, all kinds of regional feuds that take place in that area, in that part of the world, for all kinds of reasons that we don't even have time to get into on this show. So Biden came in in January 18th of this year, withdrew support for the East Med pipeline, said, we're coming in in two days, and that's the end of this pipeline. They didn't even wait to assume the White House. They uh, said so two days before. Well, Anthony Blinken has changed his tune on what this represents. Uh, you go here uh, to Anthony Blinken's take on all of this. On September 27th, Blinken said sabotage of Nord Stream pipelines is in no one's interest. On September 30, he said destruction of pipelines is a tremendous strategic opportunity to pursue transition to renewables. Well, they've been pursuing a transition to renewables in Europe for a long time. And that's the whole problem, is that these renewables that these people are so keen on simply don't supply the level of energy necessary to do any of this. And as far as this whole promise of new batteries, battery technology hasn't changed in 40 years. It hasn't. And just think about the complete fiasco of these batteries. You think about a, a regular car. You have what, 100 pounds of gasoline probably will get you what? Depending on the efficiency of the car, anywhere between 400 and 1,000, 400 miles and 1,000 miles if it's a hybrid, or maybe 800 if it's a very efficient fuel engine. Whereas you would have 1,600 pounds of lithium ion batteries that are a huge, tremendous fire hazard that you can't put out with pouring water on it, by the way. That causes the lithium to go up in flames even more to go 250 miles? I mean, all of it makes no sense. All of it is ridiculous. All of it's insane. But there are people that, that profit from uh, promulgating it. So they've changed their tune on this. Anthony Blinken has. Also stumbled across a clip from Victoria Newland. This is from January 27th of this year. I'm sorry, and I, I meant to say, by the way, the uh, East Med, Biden, I should make a correction here. Biden pulled out of East Med on January 18th of this year, not of 21. So they did wait some time and then they pulled out, not before they came in. They, they had suggested before they came in that they would pull out and then they ultimately did a year into the administration or just short of a year into the administration. Correction there. Well, there's a, a clip of Newland. Those of you who have been following all this for a long time know who she is. She's basically a globalist. She is a Dick Cheney acolyte, actually. Many people don't know that. 
she's on the call saying F the EU. We need to install this leader when they overthrew the government of Ukraine in 2014, when the Obama administration did that. Biden headed all that up. He was the head of Ukraine policy for the White House at the time. Well, she was out. This is January uh, of this year. We, we played the clip from Biden in February of this year, just before the invasion of Ukraine. And here is uh, Victoria Nuland basically saying something very similar. Um, with regard to Nord Stream 2, uh, we continue to have uh, very strong and clear conversations uh, with our German allies. And I want to be clear with you today. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. So there's Victoria Newland. And when she says this, it's important to note that she says this because a lot of times Biden stumbles into making remarks that he didn't mean to make and then the, the administration backwalks them. But given that Victoria Newland says this, you know that this was an administration-wide talking point that went out, that they were serious about. This is really their policy. And uh, she says the very same thing that Biden said. That's important. Uh, the Chinese, through the Twitter account of Zhang Maifeng, uh, their consul general of China in Belfast, uh, pinned the blame for the pipeline explosions on the U.S., saying, who is to blame for NS1 and NS2 leaks, meaning Nord Stream 1 and 2 leaks? Uh, though the Western media point the finger at Russia, Chinese experts believe it's not feasible for Moscow to blow its own pipelines in the Baltic Sea and sabotage its major bargaining chip in the energy crisis. Now, that's what the Chinese say. Now, let me just point out one scenario in which it would make sense for Russia to, yes, blow up its own pipelines. Let me just point out one scenario. And people don't bother to explain this. I don't know if anybody else is thinking the same thing. But let's just imagine this. Let, let's imagine that you are Vladimir Putin. And you've got a network of spies all throughout the world. You've got the SVR out there, GRU, signals, intelligence, all of that. FSB targeting people in the country. If you uh, thought that the United States would soon sabotage your pipeline, okay? If you had intel that they were soon going to sabotage your pipeline in this way, with an explosion, not with a cyber attack, what would you do? I'll tell you one of the things, if I were in that situation, that I would consider doing. I would consider doing uh, a sabotage of my own. If you're Putin, you're sitting there and they come to you and with a high degree of confidence, they say, sir, the Americans are planning to blow up the pipeline soon. I would strongly consider blowing it up myself first. Now, let me explain. Most of the impact of this pipeline being blown up in the reasonably short term is an impact of psychological proportions. It is a news impact. It's a psychological impact. It's a theoretical impact. We know that the Russians had already cut the gas supply down uh, first in half once, then in half again, then in half a third time, down to almost nothing through the Nord Stream pipelines. Nord Stream 2 was just barely done, just barely completed very, very recently. So most of the impact of any kind of sabotage like this would be in the short term, not an impact of actually the Germans are going to be out of energy. They're going to freeze tomorrow. No, it would be an impact of psychological and news proportions. It would make the Germans think about the prospect of a cold winter. They're not going to freeze today, but they're going to think about freezing. And then they might do things differently. 
They might do things in favor of Russia or in favor of the United States or in either direction. But it's what they think that matters today. It's not that they're actually going to die and freeze and not have energy and all that. Because they already were getting very little gas through there. And from Putin's standpoint, if you knew that the U.S. was coming and going to sabotage the pipelines, you might sabotage it first to cut them off at the pass. You say, well, pipeline's getting blown up. We may as well do the blowing up in a time and place of our choosing, relatively quickly, but at least in a place of our choosing and in a manner of our choosing, such that we can at least make it a limited sabotage. Maybe we go and put a bubble machine down there uh, release some bubbles, squirt some air through the pipeline. I don't know how that works. I just know there's one stock image that we see of this, of bubbles coming up into the ocean. That way, we know where to go to fix it. We know the, the degree of the damage. We have a very carefully placed shape charge to do this. And if we've already blown it up, what are the Americans going to do? Go blow it up again? They can't do that. Because the news impact, the psychological impact is already there. If they were to go do that now, it would have one-tenth the impact of the initial sabotage in terms of news, in terms of effect, in terms of public impact, in terms of its waiting in the minds of policymakers. So yes, if I were Putin and I started to believe that there would be a physical sabotage of my pipeline, I might blow it up first. Now, and I've done things like this before, you see, not blowing up pipelines, but I've had situations where we're advising clients who know they have some bad news coming. And in some cases, it makes sense for them to leak bad news about themselves first to get ahead of the story, to reduce the impact of the bad news that will soon be released by, let's say, one of their adversaries, one of their competitors. You get ahead of it. If you know there's going to be blood in the water, if you know the sharks are coming, you, you throw out some other red meat in the other direction. And that is a, a well-known strategy within strategic thinking. Nobody, by the way, has accused Russia of thinking this way and doing this because to accuse them of that, you would have to also be acknowledging that you were trying to commit the sabotage yourself first. That might explain why they're so disappointed by this or act so disappointed and outraged by it. You see, it's uh, something that could make a great deal of sense. There was that report in Der Spiegel that the CIA warned the Germans that the pipeline could soon be attacked. The headline didn't say by whom. Attacked by whom? Who did the CIA warn? Did they warn that they themselves were going to attack it? Did they warn that the Ukrainians would somehow do it? They, most people agree they couldn't, technologically speaking and otherwise. And so it's something that, that you have to consider. I'll give you an example of something I had to do in my own life. A lot of you remember the fake FBI raid. Basically what I did is I had actors that looked just like FBI special agents. And I had uh, a situation in which we got cars and we uh, had costumes. I mean, really convincing, good costumes. And some, after the fact, some people said, those jackets don't look real. They don't look like the real FBI jackets. Well, guess what? They were real FBI jackets, literally purchased from the National Archives. Okay. They were the uh, real things. Okay. So we had that. And basically, we staged what appeared to be a pre-dawn raid by the FBI. 
at my business partner, Jack Berkman's house, which also doubles essentially as our headquarters. That's what we did. Okay. And uh, it was very successful. The Washington Post reported um, that it, that we had a raid. This is one of the stories I'm putting it up on the screen here uh, from the Washington Post. Rachel Weiner says, FBI raided home of lobbyist slash conspiracy theorist, dirty trickster, Jack Berkman early this morning. No, they didn't. Uh, but we staged an FBI raid. Now, guess what happened? The Washington Post had spread all these pictures of these FBI agents raiding our home or his home and in our headquarters. Uh, and they had said, look, he's being raided by the FBI. Then we rolled one of the actors against the Washington Post. They had to admit that they were fooled. It wasn't a real FBI raid. And then the next week, when Dana Nessel, the Michigan AG, decided to charge us over alleged robocalls, as much as she wanted to do a raid for news purposes and otherwise, she couldn't do it. Because people would never know, is this a real raid or is it a fake raid? Are these pictures from the real raid or are these pictures over here from the fake raid? It muddied the waters and it took all of the teeth out of her potentially trying to do some kind of raid and perp walk and all of that stuff. You preemptively deal with the bad news in a way that you can control in certain instances. And, and I'm just saying that is a possibility here when it comes to the Russian uh, pipeline situation. So in any event, uh, that's what's happening. Now I want to go here to... Uh, I just quickly thank some of you for your donations. I saw this morning that uh, SEC, uh, I guess, had a $1 million settlement with Kim Kardashian over promoting some cryptocurrency scheme. Kind of a sad thing. You, you figure, you know, it's like you make billions of dollars selling people makeup and selling people this and selling people that. And then you have to promote some crypto scam to them in exchange for a million bucks or something. It's just, it's it's very strange. It's not the kind of relationship that certainly I want to have with my audience, um, it's what happens invariably when you depend on advertising, or now they call it influencer marketing. It's all just advertising, essentially, uh, for a show. I want to thank your uh, MJ again, coming in with a, a wonderful $50 donation. I thank you very much. Uh, had Raj with a $72 donation and a number of other smaller donations. You can also set up for recurring $10 a month donations, uh, all the way up to $50 a month, whatever you like, at jacobworld.org slash podcast. uses the Gumroad platform. Uh, they've been great to us in terms of uh, reliability and all of that. But um, there was a story that came out in the last week that I just found <clears throat> absolutely shocking. As somebody that has been on the receiving end of the misuse of our justice system, the, the weaponization of the justice system. Sometimes it's for political purposes. And, and sometimes it's not. And maybe it's even more haunting when it's not for political purposes because it's just, it's all the more evil. You know, when somebody just, when something happens and those in power just want someone to blame for it and they pick you and it's like, whoa, you know, that is a frightening concept. Like, for example, you know, last year when uh, the Afghanistan disaster was playing out in August, Biden's failed pull out of Afghanistan, total meltdown. They needed a distraction in the news cycle, so they sent the FCC after me as if we needed one more case. The FCC then said, 
we are proposing a $5.2 million fine against Jacob Ohl and Jack Berkman over alleged robocalls. They never followed through on that. They went away. We crushed them with motions, and that was that. But they needed a distraction. So this can happen. You can find yourself on the receiving end of a weaponized justice system for political reasons and sometimes for no reason at all. And it is one of the most terribly haunting uh, situations that you can even imagine. Uh, There was uh, a report out. This is about a, a Navy fire. A fire that took place and a sailor, a young sailor who got blamed for this fire. The report from Task and Purpose is titled, U.S. Navy sailor charged with setting fire to the USS Bonham Richard found not guilty. The decision ended a two-year legal ordeal for the sailor who faced charges of aggravated arson and willfully hazarding a ship for which the maximum sentence was life. Wow. You just imagine this. I mean, it's just absolutely frightening. On Friday, U.S. Navy seaman recruit Ryan Mays was found not guilty of charges that he started the fire that reduced the USS Bonham Richard from an upgraded $1.2 billion ship to scrap metal in July of 2020. The decision ended a two-year legal ordeal for the sailor who faced charges of aggravated arson and willfully hazarding a ship. Uh, Mays was 19 years old at the time of the Bonham Richard fire. He had dropped out of basic underwater demolition SEAL training, or BUDS, uh, and he was assigned to deck duty on the ship, painting and cleaning. You know, a tough a tough outcome for anybody who goes in and, and thinks that they're going to become a Navy SEAL, and they end up uh, chipping paint. It's too bad. But as if he thought that was bad, things got a lot worse. Uh, he was trying to get back to BUDS, according to testimony, at the eight-day trial at uh, Naval Base San Diego. His peers didn't like him, saying he was arrogant and difficult, and officers testified he lacked military bearing. Days before the fire, Mays texted his supervisor that contractors were welding in birthing while he was trying to sleep. He said, quote, it's dangerous as fuck, he wrote. Lead prosecutor Captain James or Jason Jones Uh, seized on the incident in closing arguments. He said, quote, this is a mischievous act by a disgruntled sailor meant to prove his point. Defense lawyers asserted that the investigation by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the fire was intentionally set. So that was the first thing that stuck out to me. Why is the BATFE conducting this investigation? I I mean, is, is the Navy not qualified to conduct an investigation about explosives? Can NCIS not conduct that sort of investigation? Was it determined that it had to be ATF because it wouldn't be considered uh, legitimate if they investigated themselves? I, I don't know. It's, it's a very strange thing. And the ATF is infamous for witch hunts. They're infamous for framing people. They're infamous for conducting raids that end in a deadly uh, murder of people that they're trying to uh, arrest over relatively small charges. The, the ATF has a history of just being violent, murdering, jackbooted thugs. Everyone knows that. The FD, but in this case, it says here, the, the ATF investigation found no fingerprints, DNA, or any physical evidence of how the fire started. Agents theorized the fire was intentionally set by pouring a never-identified flammable liquid onto stacked trywall boxes. May's defense team found 
other potential sources of the fire and raised the specter that other suspects investigated by the ATF and the Naval Criminal Investigative Services. So defense team points out other uh, sources. The fire burned for four days and more than 60 people were injured. 440-page result details the utter failure of Navy personnel to prepare and fight the fire in the first hour. So, you know, firefighting is a big deal in the Navy. It's a big deal on ships because if a fire gets going, and and it's not brought to, uh, it's not brought under control very quickly. A lot of people will die. And in fact, the worst Navy incident since World War II was a fire just like this. Not just like this, but it was a fire. The the USS Forrestal, I believe, in in Vietnam, where plane came in for a rough landing. It's got bombs on it. Bomb runs into this. Bombs start going off. There's fire, and they're putting out the fire. Other bombs are going off. It was the deadliest. Uh, shipborne Navy incident since World War II. And it remains that. So it's a big deal for the Navy, firefighting, fire safety. But in this case, they totally failed, obviously, and, and they acknowledge that. The Navy loses a ship to failed firefighting, but it didn't have a chance uh, once May started the fire, Jones argued. Lead defense lawyer, Lieutenant Commander Jordi Torres scoffed at the prosecutor's description of Mays as a criminal mastermind. So this is really, you think about this argument here by this prosecutor. He says, they may have failed to put out this fire, but they never stood a chance once Mays started the fire. Now, I am not, you know, by any means a maritime expert. I'm really not. I mean, there's so much jargon and lingo, and it's so highly technical, uh, the way that ships work. It's just not my area of expertise. But what I will say is, they never stood a chance. So this is presumably a ship that is meant for warfare. It's a ship that may come into contact with the enemy. And if it comes into contact with the enemy, it would be hit by missiles or bombs. And you would think that, you know, for example, a Chinese anti-ship cruise missile would do a hell of a lot more damage than one single sailor pouring out a bucket of God knows what. They never identified flammable fluid. I don't know what flammable fluid. Let's just say gasoline. I don't know. Or, or jet fuel. I mean, what, what could it be? And then it starts a fire. I mean, j- just in my layman's opinion, I say, wait a second. They never stood a chance. If they never stood a chance putting out a fire that was a bucket of flammable fluid going up, then how could they stand a chance against the ship actually encountering warfare and catching fire? That's what I wonder thinking about this. Again, as as a layman who's not an expert in ships, wonder a lot about it. Uh, it says here, uh, lead defense lawyer, Lieutenant Commander Jody, uh, Jordi uh, Torres, uh, scoffed at the prosecutor's description of Mays as a criminal mastermind. That cherry face, that goofy sailor who stays out all night working out, who is that's who Seaman Mays is, Torres said. Torres pointed out that Mays still believed he could get back to Bud's and had been accepted into Navy Search and Rescue School thinking it would boost his chances. Just one witness placed Mays at the scene of the fire that started in the lower vehicle storage deck. The petty officer, Kenji Velasco, testified that he saw a sailor in coveralls, a mask, a pair of covering, uh, carrying a heavy bucket, descended past him into the lower vehicle storage deck, but Velasco didn't tell NCIS he was sure it was Mays at the first of his eight interviews with investigators. Velasco admitted he was worried that his shipmates thought he was the fire starter, so he then sends the blame on to this guy. Mays was in the brig from August 2020 to October 2020 when the arson investigation took place. 
and took a hard look at a new suspect, a sailor assigned to engineering, who was seen running from the lower deck. I mean, you just think here, where are the officers? What's going on on this ship that these teenagers are running all around and there's there's fires and nobody's keeping track of anything and it's just like a, a complete shit show. And they aren't even in a war zone. They're docked. They're just sitting, they're at the dock. What the hell is going on on this ship? So that's what I wonder. Uh, but he was ultimately acquitted and uh, very happy for that, of course. He was very, very happy. There was another article here that I found relevant. This is from NPR. The prosecutor, Captain Jones, uh, acknowledged in a court uh, Navy report last year that concluded that the inferno was preventable and unacceptable, and there were lapses in training, coordination, communications, fire preparedness, equipment maintenance, and overall command and control. Yeah, I'll say. The failure to extinguish or contain the fire led to temperatures exceeding 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit, 649 Celsius in some areas, melting sections of the ship into molten metal that flowed into other parts of the ship. Navy leaders disciplined more than 20 senior officers and sailors. Jones told the judge that there is no doubt the Navy loses the ship that morning, but Mays is to blame for igniting it. It's just uh, really unbelievable. It's just really something to see this. And uh, by the way, here's the kicker. A defense lawyer said that the trial only exposed a shoddy probe by government investigators who rushed to judgment and failed to collect evidence showing that the culprit also could have been, wait for it, lithium-ion batteries uh, from a uh, forklift. There were apparently lithium-ion batteries associated with a forklift. They probably caught fire, it looks like. I just talk, I just happened to mention that in passing earlier in the show, the fact that, as you know, lithium is very flammable. And the first instinct when you see a fire is to pour water on it. When you're dealing with lithium that's burning, pouring water on it leads to more fire. In fact, just uh, taking a piece of lithium out of a lithium-ion battery, dropping it into a piece, uh, into a glass of water, it will, it'll light up. It combusts. Totally combusts. And so... Uh, it is a dangerous substance. And and frankly, hearing about the characteristics of this fire, that's what this sounds like. It is, is some complete uh, mismanagement of, of lithium-ion batteries on a ship that probably have absolutely no role on the ship. This person uh, says, who manufactured the lithium-ion batteries? Yeah, that's true, because uh, there, there are really shoddy manufacturers of these batteries, really poor manufacturers. Uh, they're made everywhere now and, and for very cheaply and, and often not with good quality. So uh, it says, is it a good thing it was destroyed getting rid of defective ships that could have cost lives in the war? Well, yeah, possibly. It's it's an amphibious uh, ship, and uh, as I understand it, and it was uh, commissioned in 1997, so it's not all that old, but it's also not brand new. Of course, the Navy's littoral class ships have already been scrapped, billion dollar plus ships, some of them scrapped just two years after being put into service. Uh, just unbelievable. There's a report out here uh, in Breitbart having to do with this interview with uh, somebody named John McEntee. The reason I think this is interesting is because it, it sheds a little bit of light on the system in D.C., some of the challenges with uh, overtaking the government. Uh, the 
report out uh, is uh, titled Exclusive John McEntee. Many political appointees are weak NPCs who cuck under pressure. The report says John McEntee, former director of White House Presidential Personnel Office during the Trump administration and founder of and CEO of The Right Stuff. Have you seen this? This is a, a, a dating app for right-wingers, which is uh, coming out for conservatives, I guess. I told Breitbart News Thursday that many of former President Donald Trump's political appointees were NPCs, meaning non-playing characters, for those of you who don't know, meaning uh, drones who just go, who have no uh, choice in things, just go along with whatever they're told, uh, who would, quote, cuck when challenged by left-wing pressure campaigns. McEntee, uh, who said most of the Trump appointees were politically aligned with the 45th president vision, but lacked strength of character to persevere when targeted by hostile political and news media forces. That's what he's talking about here. He said a lot of these people just couldn't keep up as soon as they were targeted, and they were targeted. Now, uh, one thing that I, I find interesting about this is I personally, personally know that uh, there were several instances, I have, I have personal knowledge of these, where John McEntee himself fired people out of the Trump administration for being too right-wing, for expressing views that were too right-wing. One such instance was a political appointee who was fired within just three hours, somebody at State Department, uh, for tweeting, quote, gay marriage isn't marriage. Men aren't women. U.S.-funded Tunisian LGBT soap operas aren't America first. They tweeted that, and within three hours, McEntee said, you can resign on this phone call, send me a letter within an hour, or you're fired, and he fired them. I was in the room. And so, you know, him coming out now and saying, well, you know, these people are just, they caved to pressure. It's like, well, the pressure also came from within the Trump White House, from him personally all the details of which I, I'm not sure of, but these orders would come down and he would can people for being right-wing. So it isn't merely the fact that, uh, you know, people were weak. There were people who were strong that were political appointees working within the federal government uh, who were removed by McEntee himself as the head of the presidential personnel office for being right-wing. So, I mean, maybe they don't meet his definition of right wing or do the things that, that he would like them to do in the right uh, order, but it is uh, something very interesting. Guys, thanks for watching and wrapping up the show here. I'll see you on Thursday. I share the link, get the show out there, and uh, we'll be back here live Thursday at 2 p.m. Thanks so much.